The way that you address someone says something about your relationship with them. And so calling someone by their first name is different than calling them Mr. or Mrs. We use first names for our friends, for our peers, for those who are familiar, who are on the same level. But to call someone Mr. or Mrs. shows you're not on the same level. It's a way to show respect to those who are older than you, to those who have authority over you, teachers, for instance. And sometimes it's not clear how you should address someone. You hit your mid-20s, for example, and you run into an old high school teacher, and you're not sure if you should say Mr. or if you can now use first names. The relationship has changed, and so the way that you address the person might also have changed. The way that you address someone says something about your relationship with them. And that's also true when you address God, when you speak with him in prayer. How you address him is supposed to reflect who he is in relation to you. Now, unlike meeting your old high school teacher, you don't have to guess. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus Christ teaches us how we may address God, our Father in heaven. For most of you, those are very familiar words. So familiar that it's easy to lose sight of just how beautiful they are. Our Father in heaven. Do you ever pause at that point to reflect on who it is that you get to pray to? And how does that shape the way that you pray? That's what we're going to look at this afternoon. And so I've summarized the sermon in this way. Christ teaches us how to address God so that we would pray in trust, second, in awe, and third, in expectation. First then, Christ teaches us how to address God so that we would pray in trust. If you go through scripture, you'll quickly find that God reveals himself with many names. God Almighty, the Lord, the Lord of hosts. And yet when we pray, Christ teaches us to call God our Father. That doesn't mean you can't use the other names for God when you pray. But our Father gets at something fundamental about your relationship with God. You are his child. You belong to his family. And that relationship is central when you pray. Now, the idea that God is a father was not completely new at the time of Christ. You see it in the Old Testament, especially in the relationship between God and the nation of Israel. In the Song of Moses, in Deuteronomy 32, for instance, we read, is he, that is God, not your father, who created you, who made you, and established you. And God is described as acting like a father. We sang about that in Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So it's there. But it does remain in the shadows. The Jews, for instance, did not typically, if at all, address God as father when they prayed. But in the New Testament, you see a shift. There's all sorts of references to God as Father. And that begins with Christ. While Jesus was on earth, he frequently spoke of God as my Father, your Father. And he addressed God as Father in his own prayers. Now, Jesus is the eternal Son of God, so it makes sense that he would call God Father. But what about us? Jesus taught us to do this, of course. 
But how is it possible? Doesn't it still seem a little bit unfitting? How can you and I, with all our sins and our baggage and our weaknesses, dare to call God Father? And the answer, brothers and sisters, is that the Son of God came to earth to make this possible. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. This is what Jesus came to do, to transform children of wrath into children of God, to make you a son or daughter of God. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are adopted by a father who loves you more than you will ever understand. That is why you may call God your father. And that is why Christ commands us to do that. So how does that shape how you pray? Think for a moment of how children relate to their fathers, especially when they're young. They instinctively trust dad. They count on him to carry them when they get tired, to catch them when they jump out of the top bunk, sometimes without any warning. They instinctively trust that dad will do what is good for them. And that is also how you should pray to your heavenly father in trust, in complete trust. For he is far better than any earthly father. The catechism puts it this way, God has become our father through Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of him in faith then our fathers would refuse us earthly things. And that comes right out of Matthew 7. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If one of your kids asks you for something that they really need, are you really going to turn them away? Or worse, are you going to give them something that's harmful? It's a kind of parental instinct to care for your kids. And if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Every earthly father is sinful. We all fail our kids from time to time. And that's to say nothing of those who actually neglect and actively harm their kids. But Jesus is saying even sinful earthly fathers, for the most part, know how to give good things to their children. And if that's true, what should you expect from a perfect father? Good things. You can trust him. You must trust him. But that's easier said than done, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Are there not times where you question whether God really is trustworthy and good? You look at your life, your burdens, and you wonder, is he really doing what's best for me? Or you find yourself doubting that God would actually want to hear from you, maybe because you're struggling with a sin, maybe because you're simply feeling down and out. 
Or perhaps you find yourself thinking that you actually don't even need God. Why count on him? Why not be self-sufficient? These are all ways that we withdraw our trust from our Father. And that makes it hard to pray, doesn't it? If you struggle to trust him, it's hard to call upon him. Now, Christ knows that this is what we're like, that we're sinful, that we struggle. And in spite of this, he intends that you would pray in trust, without rebellion, without doubt. He intends that you would feel secure in the love of God. And what Christ intends for you, he also works in you. That's why he instructs us to begin our prayers with our Father. As the Catechism puts it, when we address God as Father, it awakens in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust that should be basic to our prayer. Notice that word, awaken. Every time you pray our Father, it's meant to rouse your trust however weak and sleepy it might be. So linger over those words from time to time. When you struggle to pray and trust, reflect on how you get to address God as Father. That speaks of closeness, of bonds of love. He is my Father. And take that to heart when you pray. But Christ doesn't just teach you to say the words and then leave you to conjure up trust in God by simply trying harder. Instead, alongside his word, he gives you his Holy Spirit to work directly on your heart. Romans 8, verse 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's the Holy Spirit who creates in you the confidence to cry, Abba, Father. He stands as a witness telling your spirit, your inmost being, that you really are son or daughter of God, that you have full privileges in his house. Yes, it's hard to trust your father as you should. And it's often hard to pray. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can begin. And that, brothers and sisters, is a beautiful thing. Now, Christ didn't only teach us our father, but he added a description in heaven and that brings us to our second point. Christ teaches us how to address God so that we would pray in awe. The words in heaven are meant to teach us that God is not like us. He's not a bigger, better version of you. He's not a larger-than-life version of something that you can find in this world. He is God, and we are not. As the Catechism puts it, these words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner. And the flip side is that they teach us to approach God in reverence and in awe because of his glory. 
And scripture describes the appearance of God's glory in concrete terms so that we can learn to revere him as we should. When God appeared to Job, for instance, he appeared in the whirlwind. He spoke to him out of a tornado. You've had a few tornadoes this summer. You've seen the pictures. Picture yourself standing in Job's shoes as that storm comes close. This is your God. Do you remember Job's response? I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Or at Mount Sinai, God descends onto the mountain in a thick, dark cloud. The ground is shaking. Smoke is billowing up from the mountain as if it were a furnace. And then God's voice comes thundering down. Picture yourself standing at the foot of that mountain. This is your God. A sight so overwhelming that Israel could not stand it. And these are the ways that God manifested his glory on earth, but his heavenly throne room is not any more tame. It's not a cozy living room where you get to kick your feet up. Daniel 7 describes God as sitting on a throne of fiery flames with wheels of burning fire. In Revelation 4, there's seven torches burning before the throne. The one on the throne is as brilliant as jewels. And the description echoes the scene at Mount Sinai. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. And this is where you come when you pray. Does that not fill you with awe? Throughout the Bible, the people who see the glory of God are actually overwhelmed by fear and dread. The Israelites at Mount Sinai, they begin to shake. They can't bear to hear God's voice directly, so they ask Moses to speak instead. Isaiah, after seeing the Lord on his throne, famously cries out, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was undone. And he was right to react that way. Sinful people have no business messing around with the holy God. You don't trifle with his glory. The Bible makes that clear too. Nadab and Abihu, Uzzah, and others. Our God is a consuming fire. But then how can we pray? Wouldn't it be safer to simply stay away from the presence of this God? And then doesn't it seem like the words in heaven contradict or at least undermine the closeness of calling God Father? How can you pray to this God? Brothers and sisters, this is why you must fix your eyes on Jesus Christ when you pray. If you would have to do it alone, you would rightly feel fear and dread. But when you approach that fiery throne, it's not just you and God. There's someone else there. The man, Jesus Christ, sitting at the right hand of God. And this Jesus stands between you and God and says to you, fear not. 
fear not. Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that's amazing. Think about that. Because of Christ, that fiery throne is a throne of grace. Because of Christ, that throne, the one on that throne, is your Father. Because of Christ, you can burst through the doors of the throne room at any time and get a personal audience with the eternal God. You have 24-7 access to the God who made the universe, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. So come to him, brothers and sisters. Come on your knees, certainly, in reverence, but come regularly and often. Let his majesty fill you with awe, but do not let it keep you from him. For with him is life, and he will welcome you for Christ's sake. Now, there's one more thing that the words in heaven teach us, and this brings us to our final point. Christ teaches us how to address God so that we would pray in expectation. If God is in heaven, if he has the whole universe in his hand, then he is not limited in what he can do. He doesn't face financial constraints or fatigue or anything else that would hinder him from doing what he wants. So he's able to give you everything that you need. In fact, he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Ephesians 3, verse 20. And so as the catechism says, you should expect from his almighty power all things you need for body and soul. Expect it. Count on God to give you everything you need. And look with expectation for an answer to your prayers. You know, we often notice when God withholds something that we've asked for. And that's understandable. These are things that weigh on us. But do you notice all the ways that God answers your prayers with a yes? You ask the Father for daily food, and your fridge stays full. That's God answering your prayer. Or you have something stressful coming up, a meeting or an exam, and so you pray about it, and it goes fine. That's God answering your prayer. It's so easy to grow dull to these things, isn't it? Sometimes we forget what we prayed for. We take a lot of things for granted. Sometimes we even explain God's answer away. Maybe I didn't need to pray after all. It didn't seem so bad. Brothers and sisters, pray expectantly, looking for an answer to your prayers. And that will also give you more to pray about because when God gives you an answer you wanted, you have even more reason to praise him. And perhaps you'll also begin to see all the things he does, all the blessings he gives, without you even asking. And as you begin to recognize his work in your life, it will lead you to deeper and deeper communion with him. But there's still more to say about what it means 
to pray expectantly. If God's power is not limited, then nothing that you could think to ask him is impossible for him. Nothing. Even if you would ask for a mountain to be thrown into the sea, Mark 11. And if that's true, then you can pray boldly. You can bring your impossible requests to him. And the Bible gives us examples of that. Hannah, barren for many years already, asks for a son. That takes boldness. It would have been easy for her to give up, to think it's no longer possible, but she prays. And the Lord grants her requests. He gives her Samuel and later two more, three more sons and two daughters. Or for a more dramatic example, think of Elijah in 1 Kings 17. He prays that the widow's dead son would come back to life. Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come back into him again. That is a bold prayer. He expects that the Lord is able to do even this. And the Lord shows that he can. And there's many other examples. The Lord is able to do all these things and more. So brothers and sisters, let's make that practical for a moment. When you pray for healing, when it seems unlikely, do you believe that God can overcome your illness? Or when you pray for someone who is outside the kingdom of God, maybe someone who's left the faith, do you believe that God really can transform even the hardest heart? Or when you pray that God will help you to overcome a stubborn sin, do you believe that God can transform you? Because it's true. Nothing will be impossible with God. Believe that. Set aside the doubts that whisper, well, what I'm asking that's too much. Pray with bold expectation. Dare to pray for what might seem impossible. And at the same time, brothers and sisters, your experience is not always going to be that of Hannah or Elijah. Sometimes you pray boldly, but God doesn't grant your request. And some of you know that very well. Your health continues to decline. The cancer spreads. A loved one drifts further away. Your burdens only seem to increase. As hard as it may be to accept, our Father is not in the business of giving us everything we want. He's doing something much better. Sanctifying you. Bringing you to maturity making you perfect. And everything he does for you is geared to that goal. So he may not give you everything that you want, but he will give you everything that you need for salvation. Just ask the Apostle Paul. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass him, to keep him from becoming conceited, 2 Corinthians 12. Three times Paul prayed that that affliction would be taken away. And what was the Lord's response? 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He did not give Paul what he asked for, but he did give him what he needed, grace, including the grace to bear that thorn. And that was enough. For the sake of Christ, Paul says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So brothers and sisters, pray with open hands, ready to receive whatever it is that the Lord will give you. It may not be what you want or what you expect, but be sure of this, it will be exactly what you need And it will be enough to carry you through this veil of tears to the joy of Christ's kingdom when all your longings and desires will be satisfied when you dwell in the presence of God forever. So the next time you begin your prayer with those words, our Father in heaven, Pause for a moment to think about the beauty of what you are saying. These words remind you of who you are, the beloved child of God, and who you are praying to, a loving, glorious, powerful Father. Let that sink in. Let it fill you with trust, with reverence, and with expectation as you pray, amen.